Queer Eye for the Straight Guy came out in 2003. And its origin story is honestly kind of insane. I had to bring Joanna in about this because, I mean, who knew the show was born out of an awkward dinner party? So really, the story starts two years before the show got on Bravo in 2001. 9-11 just happened, and this indie film company called Scout Productions was trying to think of new ways to drum up work. Because no one was flying anywhere for obvious reasons, and it was really hard to get stuff made, so they started thinking about reality TV. Yeah. So the idea for the show came from a party they went to. So the they in this situation are David Collins and Michael Williams, the founders of Scout Productions. And according to the Huffington Post, they go to this party in Boston. It's artsy. And from what I understand, they're people watching, and this one couple stands out. It's this woman and her husband. Yeah, I guess he's kind of disheveled and not exactly well put together. And she just starts publicly criticizing him. Yeah, it sounds so cringe, but the way that they tell it, she was loudly talking, and she points over at a group of men and asks, why don't you dress like them? And the husband goes, well, they're gay. They know how to dress. Oh, God, that's some stereotyping for sure. Yep. So it doesn't end there, though. Now, the gay men that she pointed to, I guess they surround the husband and actually lift his spirits. Yeah, they're like, hey, this isn't all bad. Let's just do a little here, fix this there. Watching all this happen, David allegedly turns to Michael and he goes, that's our show. And if you don't know the show's premise by now, it's pretty simple. Five gay men make over a straight man. Each one of the Fab Five had their tools of the trade, you could say. Ted was the foodie. Cayenne was the grooming guru. Carson did the fashions. Tom fixed up your home. They'd pluck these straight dudes out of obscurity and into their large black SUV, giving their lives a whole new look. Jay Rodriguez was part of this original Fab Five. He was the culture guy. And although the show did lean into some of the not-so-great stereotypes about gay men, it also shifted a power dynamic. A lot of gay people grew up scared of straight dudes. Maybe they were bullied by bros, or they stayed closeted because they weren't sure if they'd be accepted. Now, they were not only out and proud, they were the ones telling straight dudes what to do. And here was a show that allowed us the opportunity to kind of haze the guys the way they would haze us, in theory, in school. And so we found a comedic twist, and straight people loved it. Women loved it. We were often repeating what partners had told, you know, their husbands or boyfriends or friends for years. But suddenly a group of gay guys say it, and boom, they're on it, you know? Seeing gay men lead a show like that, it was unheard of. Gay rights were front and center in the U.S., So it became instantly political. But our mere existence in 2003 and claiming a queer identity was something that was shocking and groundbreaking and also, interestingly enough, then widely received and wildly appreciated and accepted in spaces that you wouldn't normally see gay people. And even, you know, President Bush, who was very against uh, marriage equality at the time, was talking about us lovingly. Here's Bush at the 2004 Radio and Television Correspondence Association dinner. Do you know what Rummy's favorite TV show is? Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. (laughs) 
my cabinet could take some pointers from watching that show. In fact, I'm going to have the Fab Five do a makeover on Ashcroft. <laughs> the Fab Five didn't have a political agenda. Carson Kressley was just trying to get guys to stop wearing pleated khakis. But there was something about seeing gay men being kind and generous and industrious. I think just being ourselves and being good at our jobs and that being captured on TV in a very authentic way allowed people at home to say, well, I, you know, I think these gay guys are pretty great and why shouldn't they get married and why shouldn't they be able to adopt? So when you're visible and people can relate to you as a person and as a, on a human to human level, that's when they realize like, well, why wouldn't they have the same rights as, as we do? That didn't mean the show aired and America suddenly embraced the LGBTQIA community. It was kind of odd. But viewers seemed to compartmentalize their homophobia. I mean, you had President George W. Bush praising the show, but at the same time, working to limit the rights of gay Americans. I'm not for gay marriage. I think marriage is a sacred institution between a man and a woman. That hypocrisy, it was hard to reconcile. Here's Jay again. There was a line in which uh, people had silently drawn in the sand that um, separated us legally. And it was interesting to kind of be so celebrated in one breath while also being kind of voted against when it came to legislation that would not give us the same tenants. And a lot of people during that era were in domestic partnerships. There's hundreds of things that you're missing out of because you are not married. That's what this episode is about. How Queer Eye for the Straight Guy's impact on television and queer culture can't be ignored. While it's imperfect, and we'll get into that, it was revolutionary. The first show helped with mainstream tolerance of gay culture, but the Netflix reboot took that and ran. The Fab Five of 2018 did not just cut hair or pour wine. They also had stories and struggles. I'm Mariah Smith, and you're listening to Spectacle, an unscripted history of reality TV. This is Episode 7, Queer Eye, a masterclass in male vulnerability. Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. The original run of Queer Eye came out in, I think it was 2003, 
which uh, means that I was in high school and very deeply in the closet (laughs) and sort of figuring that out and working it out internally. That's Tobin Lowe. He's an editor at This American Life. But before that, he hosted the amazing but now defunct LGBTQIA podcast, Nancy. I wouldn't come out until I went to college. Um, And so, you know, there was a lot of the classic figuring stuff out, a little bit of self-hatred, a little bit of, you know, being afraid of being perceived as gay. And then here comes this show, Queer Eye, which declares it, which has five fabulous gay men who are very out, very proud. And it was just, to be honest, it felt like a lot for me. Like, I had this moment where I just wanted to return into the turtle shell when I saw this show. Tobin was like, no, 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 no. This is not the type of gay I want to be. One of the things that caused me to, like, go in the turtle shell about the first iteration was that, like, the guys were, like, flamboyant and, you know, sassy and that sort of thing. And that, when you're in the closet and trying not to be perceived as gay, that's a, that scares you, and it terrified me. While the show scared the shit out of Tobin, it charmed another person in his household. And interestingly, for my dad, he effing loved this show. Like, he was all in on Queer Eye. He took the tips from them. He he did recipes that Ted was teaching. And, um, and so there was this funny dynamic where my dad loved this show, and I was afraid of this show. There were probably a lot of scenarios like Tobin's, where queer kids were seeing their parents watch this show laugh along with Carson in the dressing room, or take notes when Ted starts talking wine. All of a sudden, these talented gay men were in their living room. And then, you know, cut to my freshman year of college when I did end up coming out, uh, the show became a thing that my dad returned to as sort of, you know, as he was working through his fears for me, as he was working through, you know, accepting that he had a gay son, the show was there as this, like, joyful beacon of what gay life could be. And I think it gave him a lot of hope. That was big. Because Tobin's dad had lived through an epidemic. My dad is a doctor, and he was working in hospitals during the AIDS crisis. And so when I came out, the first thing he thought of was all of the patients he had cared for. And he had also lost one of his closest friends to AIDS. If it weren't for the show, Tobin says it would have been way harder for him to come out to his father. As much as I have faith that, you know, my dad's amazing, and he totally was accepting, you know, pretty much from the jump, but he had a lot of feelings to work through. And Queer Eye, it helped both process how they felt. His dad saw that being gay was not scary, that his son's life would have ups and downs like anyone else's, but he would live, love, and grow old. And Tobin came to terms with his own negative thoughts around being flamboyant or feminine. The show was doing a lot more than just a makeover. There's something about the interaction between the Fab Five and the straight guy. They connected with him. They were vulnerable and funny. And for a lot of straight men they made over, the experience was kind of emotional. Here's Jay again. 
And I remember the first time a straight guy, you know, we're about to say goodbye to him. And the first time I was on set and um, the, the producer comes in, it's like, okay, you know what to do. Like the boys are going to leave now. So if you want to say anything, and then we do our little round Robin, like, okay, don't forget to do this night all the way around. And then he's like, okay guys. So just what, and then he would break down. And these straight guys getting emotional, it caught them off guard. They laughed at first, like, what's happening? We thought he was joking with us. And we didn't realize that straight men, to generalize, don't often have this kind of emotional connection to a group of other men who are coming in with the sole purpose to help them get to the next level of their life that they've been fighting so hard for. Viewers loved them. They went on Oprah. Okay, there's there's hope there. Absolutely. He's got beautiful eyes there. Yeah, but you yeah. can't see them behind all that hair. Yeah, that's enormous. Back in 2003, 1.6 million people watched the season one premiere. You got to remember, back then, Bravo was an arts and culture channel. It had operas and classical music inside the actor's studio with James Lipton. It was not the reality TV juggernaut we know it to be now. But Queer Eye, it changed all that. It put Bravo on the map, getting some of the best ratings in its history. The Real Housewives, Project Runway, Top Chef, all those shows might not exist if it weren't for the success of Queer Eye for the straight guy. But looking back at the OG Queer Eye, do you remember anything personal about any of the Fab Five? I don't know, like how they grew up, where they live, their family, anything. If you're shaking your head, you're not a jerk. It's because the show didn't really let the Fab Five be real people. Sure, you might get a mention of Ted's husband, but they weren't the focus of the show. And it was very much about that straight person. That's Tobin again. So I think there was like a subtle messaging there of like, these guys are useful to us as much as they can redo stuff, but then they can just leave and you don't have to think about them. That might be the harshest way of saying it, but like, that's a little bit the messaging there. It might have been subtle to viewers, but it wasn't to Jay. He knew he couldn't be 100% himself. He couldn't share how his dad left home when he was three or how his aunt died of AIDS when he was 17, with him and his mom taking care of her until she died. Just a year later, he would play an HIV-positive drag queen on Broadway. And then getting rent at 18, youngest person ever cast in leading role on Broadway in that show, and then moving on to there to becoming this sort of global cultural Puerto Rican Emily Post. I thought that was a good story. Puerto Rican Emily Post. I love that. Jay did try to get bits and pieces of himself, his real self, on the show. But he says nine times out of ten, it ended up on the cutting room floor. There was a high focus on us being seen as impeccable gay superheroes. So Queer Eye wraps in 2007 after four years and 100 episodes. Yes, 100. Season two alone had 30 episodes. Like, how did they find time to eat and sleep? I have no idea. But fast forward a decade, and he gets this call. And so the pr original Queer Eye producers, who really haven't played any role in my life since, you know, I, since the show was over, 
um, 14 years ago, had me on speaker. And in Hollywood, when you're put on speaker, it usually means there's news. Good news. So Jay's ears perk up. And they're like, we're bringing Queer Eye back. And every Puerto Rican part of me from New York jumped right in. There was no breath. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Because honestly, like now in my 30s, I have so much more to offer with a brand new exciting cast. And I just remember like, uh-oh. And, you know, at first I was really butthurt about it because I thought I helped build this fraternity and I'm getting kicked out. Just to be clear, Jay has no hard feelings now. He loves the new cast and hopes they can do stuff together. Like, maybe a Thanksgiving special. Hi, Netflix. I would like that. Thank you. I missed my guys. I missed helping people. And I missed doing something together. I don't miss doing the exact same thing we already did. Like, I'm thankful that there's a group of guys who are so generous and kind and so appreciative for for the groundwork we laid, but because times have shifted, because they're different people, they're able to take this show um, to a whole other group of people who have no idea that there was an original Queer Eye. The original Fab Five got straight men to open up, but in the reboot, the Fab Five were able to open up too. They talk about what it means to be queer in today's world. The cast is more diverse, Jonathan Van Ness is non-binary, and Anthony Porowski is bi. You have Tan France of Pakistani descent, and Karamo Brown, who is black. The original show was fighting for tolerance. Our fight is for acceptance. My goal is to figure out how we're similar as opposed to how different we are. And lucky me, I had the chance to talk to one of them about it. The network and the producers wanted everyone to just look at them as these superheroes. It came in in this one gay day and like made this person over. And so if you saw their weaknesses, it, it wouldn't have had the effect that the original show wanted to have. Recognize that voice? That's Bobby Burke, the interior design guy. But I think that one of our superpowers in the new iteration is the fact that we open up about our struggles and our failures and the things that have affected us most in life, both positive and negative. Because that's what people want to see. People want to see real life, you know, and that's not something that has been shown in reality television much in the last decade or so. Bobby and the rest of the crew wanted to make the reboot a little different. Back in 2003, the Fab Five kind of picked apart the straight guy. They weren't harsh, but, you know, it was criticism. Oh, we got a halitosis situation. We have a halitosis situation. Look at this country jamboree in here. What the hell is that? Right, that's what I'm trying to figure out. That smells like that smells like gym shorts. The hills are alive with the sound of bad footwear. And when the show's creators came back to the reboot, they initially just wanted to bring back the same show. Bobby remembers when they first started filming. This guy named Tom, the hero in the pilot episode. Side note, that's what the show calls them, heroes. And I remember us being told to go in there and find everything wrong and pick everything apart and rip the house apart, rip his fashion apart. But when they actually got there and met Tom, everything changed. And we get in there and we just see this sad, broken, depressed little man and we were like, 
we can't do that. Like, like that's, that's mean. We're all, you know, genuinely pretty kind people. And we just started like nervously actually pointing out everything that we saw great about him and showing him things that he didn't see about himself and watching him before our eyes stand a little taller and a little prouder and a little more glimmer in his eye. And we all just kept going with that and kept going with that. And we're like to ourselves, no, no, this is, this is what we need to be doing. And amongst some of the original producers, there was a fight with that. Well, we all know that Team Nice won that fight. And we're all better for it. Because that's what makes the reboot the tearjerker it is. It's not about not being good enough. It's about loving where you are, wherever that is. I think I'm unlucky in love because I'm butt ugly. (laughs) Tom's episode immediately won over audiences. If you don't remember Tom, he was this sweet older gentleman who had a beard and loved classic cars. And he still had the hots for his ex-wife. I don't have a girlfriend. I see my ex-wife, Abby, every now and then. We're still friends. And I want her to be excited about the new me. Tom is a self-described country boy from Kentucky whose drink of choice is a redneck margarita. (laughs) That's his description, not mine. Even though on the surface, it didn't seem like Tom would have a lot in common with the Fab Five, he's kind of a gruff guy, he melted in their midst. He giggled trying out mattresses with Bobby, got pampered by Jonathan. You're a little cooler though, right? No, you're You're pretty cool. Tom, you're pretty cool. I don't know that many people can just like rock his easy top beard really effortlessly. He was really down on himself. And here were these guys building him up. We have fallen in love with you. And I I didn't really expect to have this moment with you. And you are such an amazing man. (laughs) You're making me cry. No, it's okay. Tom, you're such a good man. Tom cried. We all cried. But that episode and the many that followed that season solidified the message of the show, that we're all worthy of love. That's why we always try to call it a make better. Because we're not making you over. We're just helping make you better. We're just helping you see what everyone else sees. Because it's so hard for us as our species to, well, I mean, some people have, you know, really great self-esteem. But most of us, (laughs) most of us don't, you know. I know I don't. And sometimes it's very hard to see the positive things about yourself. The first two seasons were filmed in Georgia, and the Fab Five actually lived there during filming in Atlanta. In later seasons, they went to Kansas City and Philadelphia. The original show was filmed mostly in New York City, so this going all over the country thing, it was a detour, both literally and figuratively. It also became political because they were going into towns that might be more conservative and were not exactly known for embracing the LGBTQIA community. Netflix, they really wanted to show something different, especially the fact that we started filming in early 2017. It was right after the election. You know, the world was polarized. Everyone was, you were red, you were blue. There was nothing in between. 
We and the network and producers really wanted to show the world that no, that you still you can still send five gays into you know these red states, and we can turn them pink. We can go in no matter what your political affiliation, and we can love and help each other. But that didn't mean they didn't face homophobia in these small towns. They did. More from Bobby after the break. While the original was radical for having five gay men on a major network, putting five queer folks in these towns all over the country, places that might not get the same exposure as L.A. or New York, that was pushing viewers a step further. We definitely experienced homophobia off camera. You know, we, we really live in these cities. We go to the grocery store, we go to dinner, you know, not as much anymore. It, it definitely happened more season one and two because we, we roamed the streets of Atlanta. Nobody knew who we were back then. That's changed now. The Fab Five are famous. But surprisingly, heroes sometimes make missteps in front of them with the cameras rolling. I definitely have had conversations about other things, about discrimination and racism with a hero or two, where I saw some behavior that I absolutely was not okay with. And although the situation in their mind was humorous, it was not humorous to me. It was downright fucking racist. And I told producers, I'm like, I am not moving forward until I sit down and talk with them. But that footage isn't something that stays in. And often those type of conversations may not make the episode. Um, Because at at the end of the day, you know, we're protective of our heroes as well. And just because they happen to have an an ignorant moment um, doesn't mean that that needs to be put on the global stage. Point taken. But the Fab Five did realize if they wanted folks to open up to them, they needed to share too. That sharing is part of what makes the reboot so special. When five perfect strangers come into your home, and a lot of times our heroes are depressed or are shy and introverts and, and don't really know anything about us, we have to go hard and heavy with personal stories about ourselves so that they don't feel so vulnerable anymore. Like if They're like, okay, well, if Bobby can be vulnerable with me and he can share these personal stories with me, I trust him more to open up about myself. Anthony has brought up his estrangement from his mom. Tan talked about the difficulties of coming out to his Pakistani family. And Bobby has shared a lot, too, about running away from home at the age of 15 and being homeless. The openness and vulnerability, they make it look so effortless. But Bobby said it was really hard. At first, he wasn't down. I was like, FYI, no religion. Don't ask me to do a church. Don't ask me to talk about religion. That's my one. Like, absolutely not. And obviously, they wore me down. Um, and it just, it's when you think about sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with millions of people, that's, that's scary. Especially, you know, a lot of the rough, bad times in my life revolved around the, the relationship with my parents and, and coming out. And I have a really great relationship with my parents now. And I know. Every time I'm talking on camera, the thing that's going through my head is my mom is watching this crying. You know, and I don't want to I don't want to reopen those wounds for my mother because she she knows 
the things that happened that weren't great. She knows she's apologized. We've moved on and we have a great relationship now. She's one of my best friends. And so that was always my reluctancy is every time I talk about it, I would just imagine my mom sitting there watching the show and her little heartbreaking, hearing me talk about these things and then her embarrassment of the world judging her, you know, it broke my heart. It's hard to do, but he feels like it's necessary to build the connection with their heroes and, well, with us. Um, And also so people watching can also relate and understand and realize that, oh, if Bobby went through that, look at him now. I can too. I can make it. I can make it through these uh, these hardships. I can, you know, make it through being homeless. I, I can make it through my family disowning me for being gay. The reboot is definitely building on the original. The cast is able to open up and share their stories, and it's more diverse. But it's not perfect. In season two, when they made over trans man Skylar, Skylar was recovering from top surgery. During a scene in the car, Karamo said there's a lot of people in the gay, lesbian, and bi community who don't know the trans experience. And then Tan says he's never met a trans person. And it's like, uh, you probably have. You just didn't know they were trans. Here's Tobin again. I think that's something you could avoid if you expanded the casting of the show. And I'm talking about, like, the makeover folks to include more of the queer spectrum, more of gender identity spectrum, you know. I think that's that's a way to avoid the awkwardness of, like, you know, cis gay dudes saying, like, I don't know trans people. Shrug. Now, to be fair, they could have cut that out of the show, but they owned their ignorance. Tan educated himself and in turn probably educated some viewers. Okay, it's... I'm hoping this is a safe space and I can ask you whatever I want. Please. Quite honestly, I hate to to admit it, but I'm not immersed in the gay community and therefore I'm ignorant. I don't know the correct pronouns. Mm -hmm. And how, I truly want to know, how do you, how would you feel if I were to get that wrong? I mean, it does still happen. I still get female pronoun even now with a full beard. That was one of the things actually that was the shittest part about my my hospital experience um, because my gender marker wasn't changed yet. So like on their charts, they're reading, they're reading female, they're seeing female, the doctors, the nurses, everybody's walking in. And despite the fact that I have a full beard and I'm sitting there topless, like completely like bare chest and no chest, yeah. and they still want to call me she and her and that kind of stuff like that. It's a moving scene. And it, it's, it, it hurts. Like, God, I spent almost like a decade of my life being miserable in my body, just miserable. And the way that it affected me and the way that I interacted with people, like, I haven't even felt, like, comfortable giving hugs in, like, a decade because I, like, feel people touch my chest, and it just makes me so uncomfortable. I I feel... stupid, quite honestly. But <laughs> You're not. No, I appreciate I, you trying to educate yourself. I it know, means a lot to me. No, I, I feel stupid. I always looked at trans people and thought, oh, why don't you just, like, it costs so much and it could be really painful. Why are you putting yourself through that? Like, it just seems such a traumatic experience. It's a lot. I truly didn't understand what that meant to actually have the surgery done and and, and feel that change. And when I saw the video of you when you woke up, and I don't even think you were coherent at the time. Yeah, quite honestly. I, was say, I don't remember yeah. any of it. I don't so. think you were coherent at the time, but 
That just shows how raw it was when you opened your eyes and you looked down and you go to reach for your, your chest. Um, that changed it for me. And I just thought, oh, f this is what it means. Yeah. And it's actually those makeovers, or make-betters, as Bobby calls them, of queer people that hit Tobin the hardest. In season one, they helped a man named AJ come out to his stepmom and introduce her to his boyfriend. Or in season five, you saw them help a pastor get past shame over coming out late in life. And I think it's just that thing that, you know, I was saying before, which is... When you're on that journey to try to be out with yourself, with your family, it it can feel so fucking lonely. Like, it can feel so like you're just out here on a limb by yourself. And so I really do like the moments where the Queer Eye guys get to show up and just, like, hold somebody's hand through that process and, and, be, and say to them, it's going to be okay. That does touch something in my cold, dead heart. <laughs> about, you know, what they're doing with the show. A make-better that stood out to Tobin is actually from the season Queer Eye did in Japan a couple years back. I, to be totally honest, was ready to walk in and hate it and not like it. Because I, you know, I just have this, uh, honestly, a knee-jerk reaction where it's like, oh man, y'all are going to go to this Asian country and tell them how to live their lives <laughs> and stuff. I was a little iffy on that. But... Uh, the episode with, I think his name is Khan, the um, sort of semi-closeted gay man. The episode is called Crazy in Love. What were you listening to? Beyonce. Yeah! <laughs> Khan loves Beyonce. I love Beyonce. I already love Khan. Khan struggled with being out in Japan, where he felt the culture doesn't totally embrace gay men. He has a British boyfriend and makes sure to only hold his hand when no one is looking. The Fab Five want him to be more comfortable with who he is. There's a scene where Karamo, the resident therapist, takes him to a park and they meet this makeup artist who, I think he spent some time in New York and then he came back to Japan and now is fully out. He's a monk. I think he sometimes does, like, drag makeup on himself. Khan was kind of starstruck by this monk, Kodo, who was pretty visible in Japan. He is a Buddhist monk and a makeup artist for the Miss Universe pageant. Khan told Kodo he struggles with confidence. It's really important to know who you are. And for me, it was being a gay Asian, so I decided to play with makeup. And then I felt a little more confident and I felt a little more like who I am. I started wearing heels outside and people started yelling at me. Khan said he wants to be more open, but he's scared. He said when he lived in England, he was discriminated against by other gay men in the dating scene. Some would flat out say, no Asians. He cried telling this story. Karamo put his hand on his shoulder and told him he's not alone. And you can see how much it sort of opens up something in Khan. Like, I loved that. I thought that was a really nice conversation and, and a really, you know, touching way to get at some of the 
you know, like internalized homophobia that, that folks deal with. It's kind of a meta moment on the show. The exposure of the Fab Five impacted queer folks watching. Queer kids like Tobin. But it's another thing to see someone like you on screen. Maybe someone struggling to come out who isn't confident in owning their sexuality like Jonathan Van Ness or Carson Presley. Seeing someone like Khan get that encouragement. It's an act of self-love for the viewer too. Which reminds me, I had to ask Tobin what his dad thinks of the reboot. Oh, he's on board. He loves it. He's fully on board with the reboot. He's so into it. His dad loves Antony. He loves the food guys. He can't help it. But really, Tobin says he's still a ride or die for that OG cast. There was one episode specifically where he taught the guy how to roll up his sleeves a certain way, like dress shirt sleeves. And I think my dad still does that to this day. He still rolls his sleeves up the way Carson taught him to. I mean, I can't. That is adorable. Maybe he has less to learn about the new cast because not only did he get a great primer with Carson and Cayenne, but queer culture isn't some other thing now. It's a part of his family. Next time on Spectacle. While some reality shows create the stakes, others amplify the ones that already exist. Like 90 Day Fiancé and its sister show, Before the 90 Days. The stakes are in the name. 90 Days. It's referring to the fiancé visa. Once someone is approved, the clock starts ticking. To stay in the U.S., they have to get married to an American citizen within that time frame. It's romantic. The day is finally here. He's in America. Like, he's called me. (laughs) He landed. (laughs) He's here. (laughs) But the honeymoon period seems to be over on day two. Yeah, I got her. I got her. I got her. Literally? Yeah. This is a legit power tool. It's Baby, listen, I've done this quite a couple of times before in my life. Okay. I've gone through cabinets. You can take a chill. All right, it's my mom's. Don't break it, is all I'm saying. I won't break it. And we watch as they try to make it to the finish line. I mean, the altar. You won't want to miss the next episode of Spectacle. Spectacle is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted and co-produced by yours truly. Lead producer Joanna Clay reported and wrote this episode. Jonathan Hirsch and Shara Morris are our executive producers. It was edited by Catherine St. Louis. Our associate producer is Chloe Chobel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Andrew Epen for his original music. Laura Bullard is our fact checker. And special thanks to Raquel Gates, Vikram Patel, and Shauna Shiro. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.